If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to be putting our attention into verses 9 through 20 today. Now, this Sunday, we're going to be pausing just for today in our study of Luke to focus our attention on, I think, a relevant theme that I would love for us as a church to really recenter ourselves in as we kind of move towards the future, to direct ourselves to the hope that is set before us. So that's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. And our church has been through a lot. And our church is going through a lot. But our church has hope. Amen? We've seen evidences of God's grace in joyful moments, and we've seen evidences of God's grace in the challenging moments. And as I've been praying for God's direction and discernment, I just felt pressed to take a Sunday to recenter ourselves on Jesus and to see the difference that Jesus makes in all of our lives. The Bible is a story of a people in desperate need for hope. And it's a story of a God who graciously provides it time and time again. In Hebrews chapter 6, it encourages us to see how our hope arises from faith in Christ. And in that faith, we see Jesus doing four things, do four actions that are kind of propelling us towards that hope. He grows us unto himself. He grounds us in God's story. He guarantees our future, and he guards us forever. The Bible is a story of hope, and it's a continuing story of what we get to see and be in and live in right now. So let's pray in that direction. Father, would you guide us? Would you help us see the beauty and wonder of Jesus? God, would you encourage our faith so that through it, hope will arise? And as we enter into this next season, God, I pray that we would be looking to Jesus, that we would be looking to him and let the hope that he sets before us guide us and cause us to celebrate your good news of your gospel. In Christ's name, amen. So when it comes to, to Hebrews, it's kind of a random um, one of those random uh, epistles that we haven't really been in. And we don't really know who the author of Hebrews even is. It's kind of debated among different people. But the author of Hebrews really wanted to press a couple of themes. One of them is this theme of hope. And particularly, he didn't want his readers to fall away from that hope that they have. Because life can be really hard, right? You guys feel me? Life can be really hard. It's difficult. 
There are seasons of overwhelm. There are seasons of challenges, of trials. And it's a tempting reaction to become indifferent and become lazy in what we see all around us. And that can lead to a belief and a practice of hopelessness. This is what Hebrews wants to fight against. Right? This is what God wants to prevent. So he begins in verse 9, and that's where I'm going to kind of draw your attention, is by, he, he begins by calling his readers friends. Any conversation of hope should always start with friendship and camaraderie and a togetherness. There's a warmth and a trust that we get to kind of settle into through in Hebrews, right? We're reading from a fellow believer who's looking to Christ for hope and where he's directed people he knows who have been hurt and he's directing them towards Jesus even though pain is still prevalent. If you find yourself in a similar situation, we need to remember that our hope is growing. So let's read together verses 9 through 12. He says, Dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. So the point of what is being said here is that his desire is for us to prioritize our good works because living in the atonement, being people of the atonement, is a labor of love. What does that exactly mean? It means love is always met with great opposition. And the love that we bring into the world, the love that Christ gives us, is going to be opposed to all the more. So that means the works that we do are going to be tough sometimes. The works that we do are going to bring in trials. But it's the love that Christ gives us that continues that growing hope within us. And when I was reading this passage, I just thought to myself, I want that. How do I get that? I don't know if you're there. If you want that, I hope you do. But how do we get that? I think there's two, two things that we can kind of, two ways to get us there. The first, when we think about good works and we think about working towards love, to this labor of love together, is we need to passionately work towards each other's spiritual growth. We need to passionately work towards each other's spiritual growth. I remember I had this eighth grade teacher, 
and her name was Mrs. Blizzard, which is a cool name. <laughs> and, and she was kind of this, this shorter lady, and she was the, the teacher who, um, if you had in-class suspensions, or like in-school suspensions, and you had, like, um, um, you had to do like independent learning and all that stuff, students would go to her. So she was just the one-on-one teacher who would help you through your homework. And I had, eighth grade was a rough year for Mark. <laughs> I had four, four in-school suspensions that year. I was going through kind of a hard time, and my grades were definitely portraying that, uh, particularly my math classes. I just am really bad with math. Um, Mrs. Blizzard, she had like a passion for my success. She had a zeal to her. She would like walk the halls with authority. She would like go and find you and like bring you into your, your one little suspension cubicle thing that you were kind of tied in. But she would always stay and she was always there. It was awesome to see her. And she would take whatever kind of thing she was going through and she would let that drive it into the passion for her students. Like one time she comes up to me and she goes, Mark, let's go do some math. And she's like, had a bad day this morning. I found a rat in my toilet from my, from my cat dropping it in there. You are going to succeed. <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> taking it. This is really funny. It's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then you go and you. And she would, she would do that. And she would just have this zeal and this passion. And she carried that through. And in eighth grade, when I finished, in ninth grade, she would continue to follow and like check up on me. In my math classes, one time I was zoning out and I heard a tapping on the glass window. And you guys remember those doors and there's only the one little window? She was kind of like small, so you could just see her hair. And she's like tapping. She's like, come out here. Are you zoning out? She was awesome. It was awesome. Friends, how are we zealous like that for one another? I want us to be. I want the things that the challenges of our lives to fuel passionate discipleship. I want those challenging moments, the things that we have, the rats in the toilet, whatever you want to call it, those moments to drive a love for one another. We can be zealous over each other's spiritual success, our spiritual growth. That's an encouragement that I see in the church, and that's an encouragement that the church needs and continues to need to strive towards, to see disciples passionate about each other's growth. Good works always involve serving one another and being served by one another. Living out the atonement means serving with the same passion Jesus had for us. What's the second way that we can, that we can love one another and that we can see hope growing in each other? It's the second is that our love must break barriers in word and in deed. We need both. We need both of them. We need words. We need deeds. But both saturate, 
Seattle with gospel light. But that can be tough, right? That can be tough for a couple of different reasons. For one, in our time in history, we have a real, we have a real challenge, a real personal challenge, which is all of our spiritual growth has become so individualized. So you're kind of sitting in a culture that feels threatened and you, if you go too deep, right? If you talk about spiritual growth and are trying to persist someone to change, even if that change is rooted in truth, it can still feel like an attack. The second thing, people are scary sometimes. You and I know this. You and I know this. People can be scary. So you don't want to be too pushy. You also have some, some cultural challenges going on. What does Jesus say to that? He says, yeah, every culture has a problem, has something that is going to be difficult. But love breaks those barriers. Love is what breaks those barriers, and that love is first seen in the reflection of the church. When people are loving, when the church is loving one another, and using that to go out and to love our neighbors. Matthew 5, 16, it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. All of that, we have these moments where we can, these opportunities, not moments, opportunities to show Christ's light to our people. And for us as the church, it's an even deeper encouragement because it gets to see, we get to see our hope growing. Jesus does not grow us towards indifference. Jesus does not grow us towards indifference and he doesn't grow us to be more lazy. Jesus grows us towards a deeper love for one another and grows us towards God's purposes. Amen? Philippians 2, verse 13, it says, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Serve the saints with diligence, as as Hebrews says, as imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. That is where hope grows. But that's also where our hope is grounded. So let's read verses 13 through 16 together, where we look at our hope being grounded. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. So our hope is grounded in the promise made to Abraham and fulfilled once and for all in Christ. The story that we've been swept up into starts with God, and as the Bible tells us, 
ends with God. To be found in God's story is to be found in the gospel. And not only is God's grand narrative that we find ourselves swept up in a a historical message, and even a gospel message, it's a personal message. No one has any more reason to be insecure over their life and direction and purpose than Abraham. Abraham had all the reason to lead with insecurity. Abraham had all the reason to punt his decision-making to do the thing that he saw in front of him. Abraham had every reason to develop and to act on a horizontal hope, not a vertical hope. But Abraham's hope wasn't found in himself, in his position, in his power, but God's. His hope was grounded in God's story. Friends, that's our story. Our story is grounded in God's covenant promises. Jesus grounds us into God's story. So so what does that mean then? It means that if you're in distress, your story is grounded in Jesus. If you're frustrated or hurt, your story is grounded with Jesus. If you're tempted to find momentary meaning in something you see, your story is grounded with Jesus. God made his promise unto himself to tell us his promises are in every way sufficient for believers. They're sufficient in every way against all temptations, against all trials, against all fears. So hope will arise from faith in Christ. That means that we get to look at the scriptures and we get to see ourselves wrapped into that story. It means that we can read with the psalmist in Psalm 31. We can say, be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration. My whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. But we can also say with that psalmist, but I trust in you, Lord. I want you to feel that, church. Feel that. But I trust in you. I say, you are my God. The course of my life is in your power. That's gospel. That's the good news that our hope is grounded in. That gives us and equips us with the patience we need like Abraham to ground our hope 
in God's promise to find our hope in his son so that we will see it completed in God. Our hope is growing, our hope is grounded. And in verses 17 through 18, we learn further that our hope is guaranteed. So I want to draw your attention to there, verses 17 through 18. It continues on, and he says, Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that through, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. So two unchangeable things, what are those? The two unchangeable things that he's talking about are the promise that God made and the oath. Right? They can't be, it means they can't be turned. They can't be backing up. They can't be altered. God doesn't go back on his promises. He doesn't change his mind. It means we are secure. We are safe. And our security is never is not in our never letting go of God, but in his never letting go of us. Our security is not in our never letting go of God. That happens. But in his never letting go of us. It is God who made the promise and made and swore to it by himself, to himself. The hope set before us is Jesus. Jesus has guaranteed our hope because Jesus guarantees our future. Whatever circumstance may come, there are two guaranteed realities for those in Christ, for the church. One, we are secure and taken hold of by of God of by God. And two, no matter what kind of storm arises throughout our lives, we will always be able to take hold of Jesus. So do you see that do you see that dynamic? God is always taking taking hold of us and we are always able to take hold of Jesus. So in every storm, in every season, in every trial, Jesus will be there. And in every season, in every moment, in every trial, when we feel our, the most alone that we've ever felt, God has sworn he is there. And that hope is guaranteed to continue on through the rest of eternity. That's amazing. That's amazing and that's going to be attacked from every angle that you can imagine. Because love is always met with opposition. I like what John Owen says about this. He says, our souls are exposed to storms, which is a stress of spiritual dangers, of persecutions, Afflictions, temptations, fears, sins, death. He says, etc., but I feel like that like, covers so much of, like, I don't know what else you could say. 
And these dangers, sometimes they come with violence. And in, and in their own nature, to ruin and destruction. But our anchor is hope. And it will not fail. It is safe. It is steadfast. Our hope is guaranteed, friends. But not only that, our passage takes it even a step further because it would be nice just to rest in our hope is guaranteed. That is great. But there's more to it than that. To see our hope is also guarded. It's guaranteed and it's guarded by Christ. Let's read verses 19 through 20. It says, And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So I never really understood, like we use a lot of nautical terms in kind of Christianity, right? It's, it's, it's kind of everywhere. And if you didn't notice it, get ready. <laughs> You'll see it, hopefully. But I never really understood the value of an anchor until I had a boat, and then I really needed one. Let me tell you, when we got our boat, um, which we no longer have, which is a sad story, but we had a big, we had a boat, and I was really excited about it. It was just, it was awesome. Amy and I, we were, we got all these ideas. We we're going to take the kids out. We took it to Lake Chelan with us. And I was still connecting the dots of boats and motors, tides, waves, and all sorts of stuff. And I came out and I thought Lake Chelan was going to be just fine. Um, I had a four horsepower motor at that. That's a trolling motor on Lake Chelan. So that's just not a lot of juice to get you to get you through. And I thought we were cruising. I felt the wind in my hair. I was I was going and uh, realizing it wasn't the motor that was actually pushing us. The, the waves were pushing us out. And uh, the motor did nothing. It was just it was really funny. Our neighbors were actually camping and they saw us. And I thought like the, I'm like this is amazing, but we're going like this, you know. It's just really really slow. It was really funny. But anyway, over the course of that time, I began, once I realized, oh, this motor is doing nothing, now it's not going to do anything on the way back, so I'm getting, a little, I'm getting a little fearful here, and our little boat scene became kind of just our life current season of dynamics, where Gabe is like terrified and standing underneath a chair, Elliot opened up the tackle box without anybody knowing his playing with the hooks, while we're like going in this. Tavia is keep continuing to try to, to steer the one motor that I do have. It's not doing much, but she can't have it, right? And Amy was trying to figure out where to put these inflatable things, and she put them on the front, and then we couldn't see. An argument ensued. It was stressful, right? It was stressful. And then I thought, we just need to stop. <laughs> we need to stop, and I need to, to anchor it. And I threw the anchor over, and that's when I understood the nautical references. In the midst of chaos, in the boat, kind of out of the boat, the anchor is what I understood now was the comfort. 
The funny thing about it, though, is that it was invisible to me. I couldn't see it underneath. But it was the one thing tying me and guarding me and guarding my family from all of the waves. That's the faith and hope that the Bible describes and says are anchored. We are anchored to Jesus. Because you can't always see it, but it is the firmest, clearest reality in your life. It is the thing holding you, tethering you to God's goodness, to his grace, to his mercy. And it is your hope. That's what Jesus does for us. He guards our hope forever. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in a life of chaos, in a life of unknowing which direction, where I'm going, what's happening, what's going on here, Jesus is the anchor to our soul that keeps us steady. By dying on the cross, he became the atonement for our sins and guards us as the great high priest. Verse 20, Jesus entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 through 10, it says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Everything that we seek is in Jesus. It's Jesus who grows us unto himself in word and in deed. It's Jesus who guards, who grounds us into a new story of faith. It's Jesus who guaranteed our future as heirs of the promise. And Jesus who guards our faith now as our hope. Jesus is the hope set before us. Amen, church?